Hello and welcome to this episode of Women in Finance podcast. If you're new here, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. I had the pleasure of speaking with Elif Ulbrich, the co-founder of Contextual Solutions, a Berlin-based strategy consultancy, coaching and publication agency focused on fintech and legal tech. Elif and her team help entrepreneurs, SMEs and corporations enter the ecosystem and strengthen their positions in the market by outsourcing the necessary tools or by facilitating connections to the network of experts. Elif is an avid advocate for diversity and digitization across industries. She was trained as a banking lawyer in Turkey before embarking on a discovering journey in the world of business and fintech in Germany. There are so many aspects that resonate with me in Elif's story, from pursuing her passion for technology outside of the bounds of her university training, to taking a leap and moving halfway across Europe to Germany. But what I find most inspiring is how Elif used curiosity, pragmatism and commitment to high quality work to build contextual solutions and serve her clients. If you are into fintech or want to be inspired to build your own path, please keep listening. Elif, such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Andrea, for your invitation. And I'm really happy to be here. I love what you're doing for the femtech community and also the people who are following us, who are coming, like the uh, new generation. So thank you for doing this and um, making me a part of it. Thank you for, for agreeing to be part of it and for sharing your wonderful story with me and with all of us listening. So let's dive into it and start at the very beginning with your story and how you made your way to the world of finance and fintech, I should say. <laughs> I would actually like to quickly introduce myself for context reasons, if you don't mind. So I'm a Berlin-based fintech and legal tech consultant. But I'm not a traditionally trained finance professional, actually. I'm a lawyer and I worked as a full qualified lawyer for seven years. And then I wanted to see a different side of things, different side of transactions and got like business and entrepreneurial training, which basically triggered my shift to non-legal aspects of work and uh, more like project management, business development and, and operations. Um, this is why I am now. So after like seven, eight years in the startup world, I founded my own consultancy and helped entrepreneurs and corporates basically pave their way in the fintech and legal tech market. Tell me about those early days when you decided to switch from the law to the business side of things. What was it that triggered that shift? Yeah, sure. Actually, it has connection to the first question you asked, so how I ended up in the, in the finance world. Pure coincidence, actually. So when I was working for these international law firms, which is how I started my career, basically, a lot of these high-profile projects ended up on my desk. So bank-related projects, project finance cases of financing the third Istanbul bridge, the third Istanbul airport, and some PPP projects, which were super interesting and uh, made me see that there is a lot of money in the market. There are a lot of different things going on that I'm not aware of <laughs> that I need to know more about. And this kind of pushed me towards working for a bank. And I ended up working for a bank, which was very interesting, but I quickly understood that this was not really for me because, I mean, no offense, but somehow banks tend to put their employees in a box. And this is <laughs> definitely not my profile, not my uh, personality. And also, like while working for the bank, I realized that I don't know a lot of things. So lawyers are know-it-alls 
sorry to say, mm-hmm. but you know, we are, and we always think that we know best and we know everything. But when I realized that I actually don't know anything and there are like a lot of business side decisions that I need to understand and, you know, the tech side of banking and also all other aspects of it, I wanted to actually like just get a better view and expand my knowledge. So I decided to study again, to study business and entrepreneurship. And these studies actually led me to the fintech startup world somehow, because they also found my story interesting, the corporate the lawyer who wants to switch to entrepreneurship and business and expand her horizons. And basically, this is how I found myself in fintech after traditional finance. And then I've been in this world ever since. To be honest, I stayed longer than I expected. <laughs> For me, it was like more try and see and then find your own way kind of thing, but The more I got into tech, I mean, not just fintech, but tech side of things and seeing how tech can change the world for better, like processes, everyday life, and this can be applied to anything. This basically gave me a perspective of seeing like window of opportunities everywhere. This is how I ended up continuing on this path and yeah, my story basically. So there are a lot of things you said there that I want to unpack one at a time, but There's one thing I I came across about you, about your profile while doing some research, and I wanted to ask you about it. Namely, did you get into your bachelor's degree at 15? Yes, indeed. But it's not as special as it sounds. The thing is, my father, when I was growing up, had a very high profile and a busy career. And my mom Mm -hmm. was a teacher, so she was always in school, which made them think that, you know, instead of making me suffer in daycares and kitas and with nannies, because we were also living far away from my parents' families, they thought, okay, we instead, you know, give her to school. And there are a Mm -hmm. lot of milestones that she needs to achieve anyway. And maybe, you know, she might tackle some and maybe she, she doesn't, then it's not a problem, you know. So basically she can compensate the loss of time with that. However, I didn't lose time with any of these milestones somehow and ended up taking my uh, university exams at the age of 15. Yeah, how it happened. How is that not impressive? (laughs) Actually, you don't understand it when you're there. You understand the value afterwards. I mean, it Mm -hmm. has perks and also disadvantages too, because if you're a lawyer or if you're training to become a lawyer, People expect you to be very serious, look very serious, look old and mature and, you know, very opinionated. Well, I am opinionated, but I don't look (laughs) as senior (laughs) as I am. Uh, There's also, of course, some genetical positivity, but still, I don't sometimes give the, you know, typical impression of like a typical lawyer or, you know, a senior lawyer. And, you know, when you start early, of course, this is putting you a bit more on the back foot. You always have to prove that you know something as opposed to the people that look like tall people. They always look like they know everything and, you know, they're very senior, although maybe they're young, maybe they're inexperienced, but because you're tall, you just immediately tend to think that, oh, this person is a senior, you know, he knows what he's talking about. So this was (laughs) the other side, like flipping the coin. This was my experience. Tell me more about your journey from, so you were born in Turkey, right? Born and raised there. We didn't mention that, I think. Which area of Turkey did you grow up in? I grew up in Ankara, the capital, which is basically the road less traveled. (laughs) I mean, not many (laughs) people go there for touristic reasons. It's very bureaucratic, but it's a nice city to grow in. I was raised in Ankara, then I moved to Istanbul and lived in other European cities for shorter periods of time, like Vienna, Brussels, and then Hamburg for studies and ended up in Berlin. Yeah. So how was that journey towards Berlin? 
You mentioned that you left at some point for, to study again, to study business and entrepreneurship. So was that the path that led you to Berlin? Indeed, because after several years of legal practice and realizing that there are a lot of things that I don't know, I wanted to have a change, take a break from all these long sleepless nights that a lot of lawyers can relate to and, you know, see something different. And this is when I started applying for schools abroad. And Germany was on the top of the list because of its good education because I knew a bit of German and also because it was not hyped because everyone I knew were going to UK or to US, which is also great. But I just wanted to see something different to take a path that not many people choose and see where it leads me. And I think it was the right choice. Let's talk a little bit more about getting to understand more about tech and seeing what a world of opportunities it brings and having the legal background and dipping your toes into fintech and so on. Tell me about that journey from that point to contextual solutions, which is what you do right now in Berlin. As I said, when I entered the startup world, it was just to see the other side of things, the non-corporate side of things. And it taught me a lot. First of all, because I was very lucky, my first startup experience was at Finnip, the leading fintech accelerator in Germany and in Europe. And back then it was at its prime time. I mean, not that it's not its prime right now. I wouldn't know. But the <laughs> thing is, back then it was new. A lot of very smart, very talented, experienced, exceptional people were in Finnip. And that actually helped me to learn a lot because I was going on lunch with these inspirational people, learning a lot about their journey and basically expanding my horizons, seeing things that I didn't know existed. And this was one thing. So basically the people in the startup world, this is a very important component. Then the work itself, seeing how by using tech, you can improve a lot of processes and sometimes make the world a better place. I mean, sometimes you just try to, but you don't. But in the end, it's a tool for that. And this I found great. And this is why I continued to work for startups after Finneet also. After several years, I realized that what came natural to me, so all these experience and, you know, some of my analytical skills were very valuable to others, to third parties. A lot of people were approaching me during employment and also afterwards about evaluating their idea, giving my two cents about this and that. And then I realized a lot of people actually do not know what I know because they haven't worked or they haven't paid attention. And I actually have been in some really successful companies, but also some failed companies as well, which is actually the best way to learn how to manage a startup. And this is really, really my luck. So seeing how things are not supposed to be or how you shouldn't do things, basically you just learn how to do things. And uh, then I realized this request was just getting more and more broad and more and more people were asking me to help them. And then I decided to basically turn this into professional service, a professional support so that people can have the right network if they don't have the network or the right tools or the experience to actualize their dreams, their ideas, or basically just get out of a challenging situation in a corporate job that we would help them and we would lead them with experience. So basically very practical, very applicable experiences that we have seen before. Maybe just give a few examples of things like concrete project to make your focus for anyone listening easy to grasp and to understand. Some of the projects that we work with are very early stage startups, and these are basically the heart and soul of embedded finance. There's this big trend of basically creating fintech products out of nothing or turning everything into fintech, which is what we call embedded finance. And a lot of people seeing the value in financial services and also its combination with tech, they would like to get a piece of it. You know, they would like to be Elon Musk. They would like to 
be Jeff Bezos, you know, they would like to create the next big thing. There's one portion of it is this. And the second portion is the dreamers, the people who have seen a need or have seen something significant and would like to turn it into an idea. But most of these people do not know how finance work, how fintech work, or, you know, they know how it works in England, for instance, but they don't know how the German market, German ecosystem works. They don't have the network because most of these things also are very much related to the network and, you know, who you know. Basically, you cannot just write a cold email to a lot of service providers and think that this would just work because you have money. A lot of these service providers are very selective. They make you go through a long due diligence process and knowing someone or knowing someone that knows people inside that can watch for you is a big help. So basically, this is why people come to us and say, you know, hey, I have this idea. And right now, there are a couple of these new fintech startup projects that we work on that will turn into MVPs and new startups in the next two years. But we basically take it from the scratch. These projects came to us at a very early stage. They said, we want this to happen, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to get there. So we basically found them everything necessary. We connected them to relevant providers. We shaped their business model, looked into market entry strategies, looked into whether this idea would, of course, would be relevant in the German market in the first place, things like that. So these projects we do a lot and some partially or some fully, you know, taking the idea and making it real. On top of that, we have other projects. So basically looking for the next innovative idea for corporates and banks, because most of them are stuck. They see a lot of things happening and they have this fear of missing out. Oh, Sparkasse is going to offer crypto. What am I going to do? We just basically evaluate their customer base and try to come up with a strategy roadmap for them or just simple idea evaluations, you know, written things that do not turn into execution. So people come to us with all sorts of project requests and we try to help them. And if we cannot help them, then we basically refer them to other people who can help. Do you have like a favorite project or did you have one already? They're all very exciting. <laughs> I cannot say that I like one more than other, but of course, since it's also a matter of chemistry with some founders, mm -hmm. we work better than others. And these founders are the ones that take criticism or are happy to evaluate their idea. So the founders that are not in love with themselves and their idea, but they just want to create something interesting, tangible and are also happy to improve or change their idea, but not obsessed with something that wouldn't work. And when you present them with data, they're not objecting it. You mentioned before that you gathered a few lessons learned on what not to do or like failure stories from your experience and I suspect also from your work with the entrepreneurs. So tell us a bit more about a few of those stories or lessons learned through failure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what I have realized in the past is that the smallest things matter in the startup world and that could really make or break the startup, which a lot of entrepreneurs do not care for. And I think they should should like hiring the right person. But when you say hiring the right person, people immediately think about the C-levels or the VPs and say, hey, I have hired the ex-Google person here. And then we have this former JP Morgan person in this position. So we have like everything intact. No, if you hire one toxic person, if you hire one person that is your friend and you hire this person just to make a favor, so basically nepotism, this could mm -hmm. and, and will ruin your company. And I have seen this, you know, I was working with a founder and he just insisted on hiring this person to this very crucial role. He didn't see it as crucial, but every role in a startup is important because you are basically fulfilling the tasks of two, three 
human beings as one person in a startup. So this person should have like extraordinary skills, communication or something to complement. If you just hire someone for the sake of hiring, which he did, and I begged him not to do it, it just ruined because when you see this person not working and not performing, everyone else in the team, they had low motivation. They also didn't want to work. Or, you know, some things were blocked and it was always coming down to this guy and he was the bottleneck, but we couldn't do anything because he was the founder's friend. And this is how it kept on rolling and this snowball turned into an avalanche and then we just couldn't stop it. It just killed the whole culture. And I've seen a lot of these examples. Basically, founders never ever hire someone out of pity or out of favor and always make sure that this person is qualified and fits in with the rest of the team. So otherwise, it would just mess everything up. This is one thing. And the second thing is do not ever assume something. So because you are, for instance, successful in the Turkish market, you have like a good product in the Turkish market. Don't assume that this will work in Germany just because you're successful. There are like other factors in other markets, cultural factors, social factors, economic factors. You have to always make proper research before entering a market. And I see a lot of companies not doing that. They come to us, they say, we want to enter this market. You know, we want to do this. And I'm like, Did you ask anyone? Did you make any research? Did you talk to any customers? And why are you doing this? Then they cannot answer and become very defensive and aggressive also, as if I tell you're not worth anything or something. I just ask why you're doing it and how. And if you cannot answer it, actually, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur and just close the chapter and go work for some corporate. But they don't get it. And then there's always this, you know, like very meaningless communication where they say, we'll make it regardless of what you say. I'm like, okay, whatever. In a couple of months, they just shut it down. And I know it not because I can see future or I have special powers. It's just if you don't answer these critical questions, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this for? Why is there a need? Is there a need? What need are you fulfilling? You know, and what is your ultimate purpose to be famous? to be successful Mm -hmm. or to really do something tangible or useful. And if you cannot answer these questions properly, and of course, backing the answers with data, there is a very little chance that you will be successful. That's why nine of every 10 startups are failing and you would be one of them. When you select, when you take on new projects or new clients, I assume you do some diligence as well, right? So what are some things you look for or some questions you ask? And what do those questions tell you? So... When people approach me, I've actually come to start seeing patterns of this, which I really enjoy because when you receive a lot of these requests, you're able to filter them very quickly. It's just, you know, they come to us and they say, I have this idea, it will change the world. It's always this, you know, there's this very salesy sentence. This fintech is the best fintech Germany has ever seen. Things like that. When you see this kind of things in a, in an email or in a pitch deck, I mean, in a pitch deck, it's fine, but in an email, in the first intro message or something, this is already a red flag because instead of telling you the idea, this person is boosting. There's nothing, there's nothing tangible. You haven't implemented anything. You know, there's no website. There's not even a pitch deck. There's just an idea, but this person already has the confidence to claim that, you know, this will be the best thing the world has ever seen. Then with these people, I'm a bit more cautious. I just let them wait a bit or ask them to send me some supporting documents or supporting material. And they usually cannot because they're not prepared because they're not able to answer these questions. And a pitch deck is never a pitch deck, actually. It is like a document where you answer the most important questions briefly and convince people in a very short amount of time. So most people fail at that. This is level one. Then second level, maybe this person or this company has a pitch deck already. Then I ask them, okay, 
I see your idea. What stage are you in? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? You know, uh, who did you talk to? You know, did you see these competitors? But no, and I, I challenge them basically. And if they don't react well to the challenge, I mean, instead of answering, if they start getting defensive or aggressive, then this is also a red flag. And this is also how we filter it because we cannot work together with these people. They, with all due respect, it's just if you don't want to be challenged, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur because if I don't challenge you, the VC will, and they will basically crash and burn you. And instead, you know, come and I will give you like a safe space, but you should be able to answer questions or, you know, or willing to answer questions. And we just basically ask these crucial questions of why, how, by whom, for whom, so on. And this is how we start the process. And a lot of founders are filtered through that. I would say actually a majority we have to filter here because a lot of people do not want to answer this because they say, hey, don't you trust us? You know, it's me. I'm doing it. Okay. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Good luck to you. Okay, that's super helpful. Let's talk a bit about your view of the entire ecosystem. What is hot right now and where is the fintech space going? You mentioned before embedded finance, right? Everything is kind of a fintech product. Yeah, sure. I mean, embedded finance is the big thing and it's been the big thing since the past four or five years, actually. But it's just after the pandemic, when people started pushing themselves through this entrepreneurial path to follow their lifelong dreams, this became something. And a lot of people found the courage. I was a bit shocked, actually, since last year, we have received so many requests of entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs that would like to enter the sphere but have zero financial background I've never worked in a startup, have zero tech knowledge, but would like to do it. And some have really good ideas and have the implementation skills. Some don't, but this is how the market is. And I think we'll see a lot more of this because people have seen the value of tech, but also a lot of people would like to just change their boring career paths or, you know, traditional career paths and get into this very fancy looking, fun looking journey. But it's not as fun as it seems and it's quite hard. So I would actually like to warn people about it at first. Coming back to the trends, except embedded finance, there's also crypto, as you know, because now even traditional banks are entering the sphere. This means that even the, the smallest house banks will be able to offer crypto trading features in the next quarters to come. So this will become a mainstream thing. It doesn't mean that it will be adopted by everyone because it's still a volatile product or like a tough product to crack for you know a lot of people, but it will be less of a thing. You know, It will be less of an exchange, less of a startup thing, more of a where we see everywhere and then we'll see of course different products because regulations are evolving both in Europe in Germany and also in other jurisdictions as well other than that what I see as a big trend and that will become hot too pretty soon is this lifestyle banking so basically banks shifting more towards lifestyle services, less of becoming a bank, more of becoming like a lifestyle provider, offering health services, insurance services, traveling services, or, you know, depending on who their customers are, they would be offering more and more non-bank, non-financial services. So the bank services wouldn't be limited to those we see in these definitions of banks and regulations anymore. There will be more to it. Because, you know, traditional banking is dying, margins are low, interest rates are low. So, I mean, what to do, right? And there are a lot of new players in the market. So they would just ditch all these non-productive, non-profit-driven you know, services, outsource them maybe via fintechs, smaller providers become more niche and maybe turn their faces towards starting with crypto. Of course, this is also why they are going to this. There's a margin opportunity and there will be more of it. It could be education. They provide education services or, I don't know, not just cashback or bonuses, but more than that, you know, 
butler services, I don't know, pick up from the airport, could be anything. And this is, I think, where banking is evolving. We already see uh, reflections of this in Asia and in some more forward-looking regions and with some forward-looking companies, but there will be more to it. I, I guess this is what we'll see will spread. Hmm. I guess we see some of that with neobanks. They offer something like that, also lounge access and stuff like that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, so neobanks are already doing it. Revolut is already offering travel services. So this we will see going more and more mainstream or more, you know, adopted across the industry. But of course, neobanks have their profitability issue. So they're already facing these challenges of will we make it, will we not make it? Not all, but some, because all of a sudden there are many neobanks and they're all doing the same things. And of course, growth is not a success factor anymore. So having like three or four million users doesn't mean that you've made it. So you really have to start making money at one point. And if you cannot, then probably VCs will turn off the tap, most likely, or some bigger corporation will buy you just for the brand value. But the thing is, who will make it and who won't? So I think the ones that are more clever about it, but do not copy what Revolut does exactly, but come up with a more interesting product or something more niche, they will win. Hmm. So, but do you think the land grabbing, market grabbing, Efforts, have they pan out yet? Yeah, not yet. Not for all. Because actually coming back to what we said about all these small things matter. So mm -hmm. sometimes these things happen like fintechs go bust or startups go bust after they made it. You know, they're successful, but then they're just too arrogant because they think, oh, we made it. No, there is no destination. It's a journey. You just have to go with it. And you just have to grow as your customers grow, change as your customers change and evolve. And if you aren't aware of it, then you're likely to go bust, maybe not in your first years, but afterwards, because there are so many competitors that are just, you know, there to grab your market opportunity. I mean, just look at this food delivery services in Germany. I mean, Lieferando was the thing, right? And then now comes what? That's doing exactly the same thing but better somehow. And just shows that Lieferando should have maybe changed or improved the services, fixed the issues and I'm not being paid by what well, by the way it's just I like their you know service better so far but it also doesn't mean that we'll make it in the long run if they also become arrogant and become lazy in the future they're also likely to lose it to some third parties that we haven't heard of yet yeah but I mean it's so it's super interesting as a customer or as a user right it's a bit different Because I can always download just another app and, you know, include my credit card and so on. But I cannot move my life savings or salary <laughs> account every few months. So what advice do you give to people or how do you see it yourself personally when it comes to trust in the service, particularly with this like new products that seem to be a little bit better, but you still have your question about their long-term sustainability and so on. Do you advise people to spread themselves, have a like a portfolio of things? they use or how do you think about that i mean definitely people should keep an open mind but it doesn't mean that they should jump into things blindly because i wouldn't download every app that is on the app store even very recently we have discovered that tiktok is you know collecting way more data than it should have and a lot of people have it on their phones already and you see that linkedin database is being hacked and then hackers are stealing your emails and then using it for other purposes so, so this could happen anywhere basically you always have to run a diligence check read the fine print i know it's boring but read the terms and conditions look at where they collect data how they make money if they are not asking for any money whatsoever then you think okay what is uh, you know what is going on you know how they're making money if you have any questions reach out 
ask people, I mean, don't be paranoid because I have a friend who have never used PayPal and that I find ridiculous because she doesn't trust in PayPal, you know, instead enters her credit card information to each and every website every time she shops, which is, I think, absurd. But there are all these new trading apps and similar wealth tech apps. So just try them, look at them. Don't move your entire life savings all at once, like you said, but have a trial period, you know, move a bit of money, test it, see if everything goes well. Because not everyone has the same trust system, right? So just, you know, build it for yourself. And, and then if you like it, continue and don't put all your eggs in the same basket. Don't use one bank for your savings. And I mean, this is only for our generation anyway, right? Gen Z doesn't believe in savings. So they can use their money for avocado toast from one account to another quickly. PS2 allows people to move bank accounts very quickly, very seamlessly anyway. So in Europe, it's not a problem. And it's spreading in other geographies as well. I mean, speaking of Turkey, because you asked me earlier, Turkey is also, you know, adapting or getting prepared for PSD2. So basically implementing all these regulations that Europe did several years ago, this will spread, you know, just look around and see what's new, try it out. I'm going to take the conversation in a different direction now. So we're going to talk more about your personal experience. And you mentioned at the beginning what people expect a person to look like in a certain position affects kind of their standing, how they're perceived and so on. And I found this interview, which I'll um, put in the in the show notes, where you mentioned that you used your stereotypes or stereotypes features to your advantage. And I found that super interesting. So I'm curious whether you want to share more about that and maybe give a few examples. Yeah, definitely. I'm actually happy to also share negative experiences because not everything is pink and happy and unicorns. And, you know, just giving this kind of illusion, I think, creates a distorted image of career building and also makes people feel bad. Oh, I'm the only one experiencing problems. Why don't I see other people sharing these things too? So I think we should all share about bad experiences too, so that people see that they're not alone and there's more to it. And coming back to my personal experiences, unfortunately, Germany is not, German finance ecosystem, let me put it this way, is not the most female embracing, supporting ecosystem. I would say, I don't know what you think of it. But unfortunately, this was my experience. It doesn't mean that you cannot find a job. I mean, you can easily find a job. You can make it. But if you are ambitious and if you want to rise up the career ladder, just become an executive, this just becomes harder. And the more you want to go forward, the harder it gets. And this was not just my experience, but also the people around me. And I've seen that, of course, being an expat and being a woman, an ambitious woman also, opinionated woman, <laughs> a direct woman, was not appreciated by everyone. And I'm not, of course, I don't want to put a black dot on the whole ecosystem, but there are bad examples, which is actually also the startup culture as well, this VC pressured startup culture that is supposed to deliver. And, and I feel like women get more pressured there. Women are asked to prove themselves, demonstrate their skills and experiences, whereas men are not as much. If I'm standing next to a tall male white colleague of two years of work experience with my, you know, 10, 14 years of experience, I will still be the one who is asked to explain more, you know, who is asked to basically justify, whereas the guy would, you know, just go along with all the stupid, sorry for my French ideas. And this is acceptable, you know, not everywhere, but mostly. And what I've seen was that it was not so easy to be an expat woman and to, you know, work as an executive and like work with traditional counterparts. So I was going to meetings in rural Germany 
and I would be the only woman in the meetings and I would be asked to take notes or the counterparts would be you know, looking at my colleagues and talking directly to them instead of me, although it was my area and I was the one setting up the meeting and fixing everything. Then I've seen that as long as I am not in charge, but I am appointed by someone else, no matter how much this person likes me or appreciates my work, I will always be in this position of being compared to male colleagues. And, you know, they can always fall short because of my gender, unfortunately. And what I've seen was that in order to get ahead of the game, I needed to become a founder myself. And this was my intention anyway. So this is how I actually took the leap and wanted to found something small or big doesn't matter you know doesn't matter if you're creating facebook or like a small company it really doesn't matter it's just you have to take the leap and create something for yourself where you are the one in charge then people really respect you then you're out of this you know comparison zone and you don't have to deal with and this is why i mean with using my stereotype advantage you know she's a woman she's an expat using this as an advantage and and then basically people were respecting me and people were telling me oh, this is a female founder this is an expat female founder you know then what was not appreciated before became like a success factor. You know, she's successful despite the fact that she's an expat and a woman and these kind of things. And I have also started using this as a, you know, PR boost. So, you know, pushing myself more into things, basically throwing myself and everything that comes along. And, you know, whenever people ask me, can you do this? I would say I would do it, even if I don't want to, or I don't like it, or I don't know how to, I would just learn it and I would do it. And basically seeing me everywhere. I mean, it just created the, how do I say, like the trust in me, but also it subconsciously builds the trust in other females as well. Because when they see, I, I receive a lot of messages, people say, hey, you know what you did? I find very significant because I love that there's a woman there. I love that there's a Turkish woman there. I love that there's an expat woman there, you know, speaking at these events, you're the only woman there. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm not saving the world, but seeing a woman in like a panel of five, you know, panel of five sometimes makes people feel better about themselves. That's why I just decided to push myself even forward. So I just say yes and just be visible for the sake of the whole female entrepreneur's visibility. That's so inspiring, not only because a few of those stories I can directly relate to <laughs> from my own experience, unfortunately, I should say. So thank you for doing that and for deliberately trying to be a role model in that way. So that's super powerful. I'm wondering what motivates you? Is it this or is there some sort of other intrinsic motivation that you have or what drives you? Uh, what drives me is people. I'm a humanist in core and I realize that you cannot look for an inspiration. You have to be inspirational yourself. And then this is how you make the world a better place. And I'm not saying I'm inspirational or successful or have achieved anything, but just, you know, really trying to make it, trying to make the lives of others better somehow. And this actually leads me to very wonderful people like you. This is how it works, actually. You know, all of a sudden you just receive a message saying, hey, I would like to introduce you to Andrea. And this is by another wonderful female entrepreneur that I also, you know, look up to or, you know, feel inspired by. This is how it works. We just support each other and don't have to talk every day or invite each other to birthday parties, but you have a support system. And by this, we are getting stronger. And I'm trying to create this. And while doing this, we'll, of course, filter all these people that are not supportive, that are not helpful for this cause. And I also get disappointed a lot during the day, but the rest of the day drives me basically. I just try to forget about the disappointing facts. And unfortunately, most uh, of the disappointing factors are coming from women. I, I don't know how your experience was, but 
I mean, I know there was a lot of sexism that I faced, but in the end, you know, the people who supported me most during my career pushed me forward, just sent me to shows, found gigs for me, pushed me forward and basically gave me more courage. They were men and I really thank them for that. And in the way, I had a lot of hurdles with female colleagues as well. I mean, not everyone is as supportive like you thinks like I need to create this podcast for other women so that they feel inspired. A lot of people are, oh, Andrea is creating this podcast, but she's more successful than me. I don't want her to be more successful than me because there is only place for one woman that is successful. This is like a mistake a lot of women make. I think they think that there's only space for one woman and they have to compete for this. It's actually our job is not to compete for this one role, but create more roles by getting rid of useless people that are blocking these positions. Oh, I couldn't agree more with that, obviously, <laughs> for obvious <Yeah>. reasons. <laughs> I'll have to talk more about it, but maybe afterwards, you know, <laughs> we meet in person. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of this and for taking that journey with me. I think to close things off, tell me about some lessons learned across your career or some things you know now that you wish you knew kind of like 10 years ago or so. One thing that is very important to me, and I basically live with that, and this is the core of my work, is that any person that you meet could be a door opener. And any email that you receive could be relevant. A lot of people don't see value in this. It's like Tinderization of work. You know, you just look at it. Is it useful for me? Can I immediately make like 500 bucks from it or not? And then they say, no, swipe left. (laughs) This is not how it works. You know, you should get to know people and understand people. And actually, there was a student that wrote me once, and he just wanted me to help him with entering the fintech scene. And I gave him a couple of tips. And then afterwards, he was very grateful, and I never talked to him again. Then a couple of months later, someone from Middle East contacted me and said, hey, I would like to work with you. And I said, yeah, but we don't have anyone in common. You know, We don't know anyone in common. How did you come across my profile? And he said, the student that I talked to recommended me and I found it so ridiculous I didn't have this intention but basically any person and be kind you know any person that you meet could be important for you and this is how I see things other than that you know do not resort to people and networking only when you need to because that looks very pragmatic and not elegant when you only go to people hey Andrea can you do this you haven't talked in five years that's not nice. I mean, just write a Christmas message, a birthday message. It doesn't cost you anything. The people think, you know, they look cooler if they don't do these things. That's, I think, a big mistake. One of the things that I wish I knew before or was able, was stronger about it is that if you see a toxic environment, don't try to change it. Just run as fast as you can and listen to your gut when you're defining this environment. Is there a book that had a particular impact on your development as a person or your career? Yes, but these are, this is very non-conventional because the books and the people that inspired me most are not these business books. You know, I have a lot of business books. Don't get me wrong. I read them every day. I love Sprint and No Rules Rules and The Mom Test. There are so many that I can say, but although they were super useful, none of them were as inspirational as the biographies of these single individuals that made out of extremely difficult circumstances. And there are some books that I would like to share, and they're, again, not business books, like Desert Flower, a book about a young woman, a young girl actually making out of Somalian deserts to London. It's a very inspiring, heartbreaking story, but it's amazing. Another one is Mate. It's by Stephanie Land, and I think it just turned into a Netflix series. But it's also pretty cool. It's about how a lot of people just live in very inhumane conditions. And we are not even 
aware of this. It's a, and it's a very striking, inspiring story. Another one is by a Turkish author who moved to London afterwards. It's called Portrait of a Turkish Family. And this is about the First World War and its impacts on a society and how the lives of people like single individuals can change because of some dudes deciding to declare war among each other. Is, you can just see from big to small that I find very beautiful. And another one is a bit sad one, but I find it also very interesting. It's called As Nature Made Him. And it's about gender change and the medical history of a kid who had to live a different identity because his parents decided this for him. And again, shows what a single decision that you make on an afternoon can have, like what kind of impact could it have on other individuals? And, you know, it's basically dominoes. You're just changing generations by one single decision, bad decision, actually. I find them very inspiring and core to my personal development, I would say. Awesome. Great picks. So before we wrap things up, how can anyone listening reach out to you if they feel like they have to? Well, I'm very active on social media, so they can mm -hmm. always drop me a line on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I can also leave my emails with you, which we can share as long as the request is genuine and they don't want to use me as Google. You know, sometimes you can just type things on Google and it answers. <laughs> But other than that, I'm always happy to help and answer questions. Awesome. So I'll put your, your LinkedIn and your Twitter and the website of Contextual Solutions in the show notes for anyone interested and to please reach out genuinely and not use Elif as a Google uh, resource. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was it. Thank you so, so much for doing this. What an interesting conversation. And thank you for being so genuine and for sharing your views and your experience. Uh, so unfiltered. I love it. Thank you very much. I mean, I really, really enjoyed having this conversation and we'll definitely continue it on another level. <laughs> But also thank you for giving me the chance to have this unfiltered conversation because I don't think it helps anyone when you just boo and shish, you know, all these negative experiences. It is how it is. I mean, if someone feels like they're also having a bad time, they should not feel alone. You know, and that's the whole point of it. Yeah. That definitely is. And thank you for being a part of it and, and for sharing it with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're new to the show, I hope you will check out my previous interviews. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For the show notes, please head over to our website, womeninfinancepodcast.com. Thanks again. And until next time, keep well. All opinions expressed by Andrea and her guests are solely personal opinions and do not reflect the opinion of any respective organization. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions.